Welcome to Pup and a Cup, where we are enjoying a delightful cup of Starbucks Cafe Verona cold brew. I am joined here with my co-host, Janelle, who is the rescue director of Redstone Husky Rescue. I am Steven. I'm the administrative director for Redstone Husky Rescue. And today we're going to be talking about making difficult decisions. Janelle, do you want to expand a little bit on what that's going to mean? Um, a lot of difficult decisions that we make in rescue care, it revolves around the dogs that we're taking in, the dogs already in our care, and then what kind of growth and expansion that we're looking to do. So we do have to sometimes triage and make those choices, but also we have to always keep in mind the quality of care that we're providing the dogs and the lives that they're living. So one of the big decisions that we have to make regularly in rescue care is particularly which dogs end up being placed in foster care and which ones we end up keeping in our direct care. Now, foster care being a much more, uh, what am I thinking, enriching environment. Normal for them. Yeah, it's it's very much more normal um, whenever they're in our rescue care directly. It can be a little bit sedentary at times just because we have so many dogs that we're caring for at any one time. While in foster care, they're getting a more one-on-one life and time there. So what kind of factors in rescue go into that decision? Uh, So one of the biggest factors is what medical care a dog's going to require. Um, Generally, if they are heartworm positive dogs or they are dogs with fractures or needing more day-to-day medical type care, then they stay here with us because I have a little bit more involvement with those cases. There's a lot of going back and forth from clinics. Um, One of our heartworm positive dogs actually started having seizures after heartworm treatment, which it unfortunately can happen. It's not, it's not super common, but it's not unheard of. And those dogs do require a lot of follow-up care. And so we try to keep them here with us when we know that that is to be expected. But in foster care, we know that they're going to get a much more normal type environment. They're going to be able to integrate post-adoption a lot easier. And so those are things that we do have to consider for each dog. So how difficult it is it or is it to be able to make that decision between this dog gets to go into foster care and this dog doesn't? Uh, sometimes you feel like, oh, this dog's been with us longer and so they should go into foster care and get their chance to get out of here and live a more normal lifestyle in regards to what we expect a, a companion animal to live versus there's other dogs that are just not adjusting to the way life works here with us. And, you know, it's a rotational schedule. It's you have time in your kennel, you have time outside for play. You have roommates and you get to know your little pod versus in foster care. It's very much, you know, a your foster parent may be a nine to five kind of job worker and come home and then you're out and about and you're part of the day-to-day life so it's 
definitely one of those things that we have to take into consideration of it may not necessarily be our longest running resident that gets to go into foster care it might be somebody that's just not handling our environment well and so you kind of sometimes feel like you're cheating the dogs that have been here longer because it's like hey it's your turn just kidding the new kid on the block is kind of having a mental breakdown but we do make sure that our dogs have everything that we can have at our disposal to help ease that tension and to make their lives enjoyable. And a little bit more information on some of those tools can actually be found in some of our previous episodes where we talk about, you know, how to keep stress down and fear free. So one of the other difficult decisions that comes into play is whenever we actually have to make a medical decision that may permanently alter a dog's life. Now, one of these stories that we can talk about a little bit is Trinity. So Trinity came to us as an owner surrender. She was, uh, she is a blue healer mix, uh, potentially husky mix that came to us with a spiral fracture in her back leg. Now, spiral fractures are notoriously hard to repair and can actually cause some long-term pain. So Janelle, who handles our medical decisions, uh, had to make a difficult choice in that. Yeah, so we were presented with the options of we could could put her through a fracture repair, which could have looked like potentially doing what's called an external fixator, where they have pins driven all the way through the bone to the other side and there's actually a metal cage on the outside of the limb Um, we had the option of potentially doing what's called an intermedullary pin which down the hollow part of the bone marrow you actually drive a pin to connect the two pieces of the fracture and then shorten them up to pull them together there's a potential of putting screws and plates on her leg there's all of these different things her recovery process would have ranged anywhere from uh, 12 to 16 to 20 or more weeks of strict cage rest, no play, um, having to be carried or walk on a sling and all these other things. The option we ended up going with was actually an amputation of that limb because we're looking at instead of 16 plus weeks of crate rest and recovery and a lot of pain going into that, it was a matter of maybe a maximum of two weeks of pain for her and then we remove her her sutures and let her go be a puppy. So what kind of long-term impact does that have on a dog to be on three legs instead of four? Um, Their other legs can definitely develop some arthritis. They can definitely... um, they get some in the initial stages they do have some weakness in their other limbs and if you know if you accidentally bump into them they can fall over and things like that as they're adjusting and relearning how to balance but the big impact that we see and where we see dogs more successful than not um is you have to keep their core strength up so their abdominal muscles all those core muscles that when you think about oh, I'm going to go do core at the gym. That's what we need those dogs thinking about on a daily basis. And so we will do them if, if they're 
not handling recovery well, we will put them through physical therapy to build that core strength on unstable surfaces with support, um, potentially going walking in an underwater treadmill, but that's more for recovering the limb itself, which obviously in an amputation is not there. Um, Just happens to be uh, something missing there. Yeah. Um, funny story about that in a second, but... That's really what we focus on for these three-legged dogs is that their core strength needs to be sound. And I tried with Trinity to actually walk her out on a sling more than once in those first couple of days. And uh, when we had her with her current fracture, she was very receptive to that support. She was very um, depressed. She wasn't very interactive. She would go out, go potty, and come back inside and go back to her kennel and just lay there. She was not very animated. Um, We actually got a phone call saying, hey, we know you need this amputation. Would you want to bring her in on Monday versus two weeks from now? I was like, absolutely, yes, 100%, because I can't have this dog like this. Uh, And the next morning, the dog was trying to run laps around the yard. And I was like, let's maybe not. Let's rein it in just a second. Like, you gotta, <laughs> you need to heal first, and then we can run laps. Um, but on the something missing factor is that uh, my mom was actually here for on a vacation, and she was drying Trinity off after she had been playing in the pool, and this was a good month or so after recovery. And she was like, okay, we're going to dry off your front leg, your other front leg, dry off your back leg. And she's like, where where's your other back leg she's like oh yeah you don't have it (laughs) (laughs) yep so it can be more of an adjustment actually for the person involved than it can actually be for the dog at times um because dogs they operate in that that limb was just never there and so they just start moving they adapt they very much are able to even psychologically process it so much faster than most humans can. They very much live in the moment. Exactly. So whenever you're actually considering an amputee, to go back to our initial topic, so what would be the better option for an amputee, whether it's foster care or rescue care? Um, initially, our, our decision initially is to keep them in rescue care because it does require a lot of daily medications, post-op and pre-op because we need to get ahead of their pain score before we put them through an orthopedic procedure like that. But a lot of nursing care as far as monitoring the incision, keeping an e-collar on them, nobody likes doing that. E-collar is short for Elizabethan collar, not an electronic training collar, Um, just to clarify. Which we are firmly against. Uh, And so keeping the cone on their head, to keep them from chewing their incision out, all those sorts of things. There's a lot that goes into it. We actually have um, two tripod dogs in rescue care right now. The second is, he's about three or four years old. His name is Forrest, and he is much larger than Trinity. Trinity is maybe maximum 35, 40 pounds. Around there. She's she's a petite little thing. Um, I think that's the healer side of her. But... Forrest on the opposite side is a very large boy at 70 pounds. Um, He came to us also as an owner surrender, but his joints, his knee joint and his equivalent of his ankle joint, so it's called the stifle in the hawk uh, or tarsus, they were both fused to where he could not bend them at all. And his owner said that 
you know, she had consulted with orthopedists and they said that it would actually do him more harm than good to go in and try to repair those joints to where he could use them. It was going to be a very costly procedure for him. And she was told that as long as he was weight bearing on it, that it was just fine to let that go that way. Um, once he actually came into our direct care, through a series of events, I watched him. He could not bend that leg. It was very difficult for him to posture to go to the bathroom or to get up from laying down. He actually tried to go down. We have one step from our porch to the backyard. He actually tried to step down that step and he did fall because he couldn't maneuver that leg. He had to swing it out and all the way around in order to take a step with that limb. And so... At that time, seeing his day-to-day struggle, I prompt, it prompted me to make him an appointment to consult with our veterinarians on what should I do? Should I just let him continue to adjust like this and support him, or is he a candidate for an amputation? And ultimately, we did decide that amputation was going to be long-term better for him as well. So whenever you're looking at, you know, the sizes of dogs and as they're recovering over time, you talked about core strength. Now, core strength is definitely something that is more built over movement and running and being more active. So in that case, after their initial recovery, is foster care fairly critical for them? It definitely played a large part for Trinity. Um, We were seeing that Trinity, who was in more of our general population for our dogs, of she had her turn in kennel and she had her turn outside to play with her her little pod, her play group. Um, We sent her for foster care, actually, with my mom. And my mom's a very active, retired woman that she goes on hikes very regularly. She's outdoors a lot with all of her dogs. And I was noticing that in our environment, Trinity was actually fatiguing far faster than she should be. And she was having to, like, she would run after somebody and then sit down for a second. And then they would run back by and she'd be like, no, I still want to play. And so her going into foster care and challenging herself on a more regular basis physically of, okay, there's steps to go up and down to get to the backyard. There's a couch that I can jump up and down off of at my own will, all of these things. They would play tug, all that kind of stuff. It really challenged her body on a more regular basis, and it did play a very large part in her overall stability and building up to where she's not fatiguing as much and as fast at this point. So definitely just another reason why foster homes are just so critical for these rescue dogs. Mm -hmm. It is something that is a lacking resource in the rescue world and every single foster is just that that diamond in the rough that you're looking for because they can make a real difference in these dogs lives well the other piece of it too it's not just for dogs that are post orthopedic or post massive surgery our dogs that have gone through heartworm disease like they're on strict strict cage rest for several months because we cannot let that heart rate get up because it can cause pieces of dying adult heartworms to break off and cause what's called a worm embolism. And as they go through that process, they're in a kennel or in an exercise pen a lot of the time. And those dogs, once they're through that, they need their chance to go into foster care. And while we do have to keep them fairly activity restricted for several months after their final injection, 
they still need to learn those life skills and they still deserve to have that really regular interaction with humans and with a family. And so it's not just our like massive surgery post-ops that need to then find foster care after they've gone through medical here with us. So with amputations, that means that these dogs are going through a pretty severe uh, surgery. And whenever you do go in for surgery, one of, another difficult decision that is had to be made is CPR versus DNR. Now, for those who don't know what that stands for, um, cardiopulmonary resuscitation, which if the dog were to end or their heart were to stop beating or some complication were to come along with surgery, the DNR part would be denying or do not resuscitate, um, which in that case would be letting the dog go. Now you have to sign one of these forms every single time you go in. Now that's an incredible, incredibly difficult decision for owners and rescuers alike. So I have the both fortunate and unfortunate uh aspect to the way that I view this is that I have been the one running what's called a code. So when you're actually running CPR on an animal that has gone into some form of arrest, um, I have also been on the receiving end of this of my dog is going in for emergency surgery and I have to make that decision. And so as both a veterinary technician with a lot of background to me and then also as a pet parent I have to look at all of the aspects of is this going to be worth it do I feel like I'm going to get the same dog back after if we do get them back from uh, running a CPR or is it one of those things that our chances of getting them back is very slim and so I do not want to put the animal through that when it comes to rescue I actually have signed all of ours up as a DNR uh, because if something were to go massively wrong with them under anesthesia and I were to get them back, A, we don't necessarily have the resources to find out what went wrong. And B, I have to kind of allocate those resources of it would be tragic. I would be heartbroken. I wouldn't handle that well in the initial stages of grief at all. But ultimately, it was their time to go, and my chances of getting them back would be quite small. Um, so I definitely take that into consideration. But there's a unique aspect to this, too, in that we will actually, we have made the decision as a rescue that we put our heartworm-positive dogs through their spay and neuter procedure before they have their injection series. Reason being is that if we waited, these dogs would be in rescue care for a year or more while they go through cardiac recovery to be stable enough for surgery. Um, And those dogs are also DNRs because if their heart takes that much stress and we try to do CPR on them at that time, we may lose them through heartworm treatment anyway. And that's just not, it's not fair to have put them through that and then lose them down the line because of the cardiac stress that they were put through. And that's definitely a hard emotional burden to carry that you have to make that decision of essentially if something goes wrong, who lives and who dies. And that's, it is something that is a struggle that you have to think about um, in more ways than one in rescue. And that kind of goes into 
another really difficult decision. Um, like Janelle mentioned, we have to consider where we allocate resources and where we end up moving things and where we end up giving money to and which dogs we can actually take from a shelter or an owner. And when you make that decision of when not to pull a dog, that can sometimes mean that that dog is not going to make it. Um, to kind of go a little bit more into that, uh, we've, we receive probably about 40 to 50 owner surrender requests a month. And that is something we have, we look at every single dog, we look at every single detail, and we try to decide who are we able to take on and responsibly able to take on and who can we not? Um, a, a very big factor into that is do we have an open foster home available? Because I don't enjoy taking owner surrenders and then putting them in a kennel type environment or bringing them into our direct care where they get a crash course in crate training and they get a crash course and you just got removed from the family and the home that you always knew and now you have to make a bunch of new friends to have playgroup time. Um, if they really are not compatible with playgroup, we will not force it. We do not want any of our dogs in danger. But then they're outside by themselves, not by themselves, by themselves. We're sitting out with them, but they don't have a, a buddy to play with and things like that. Um, a huge factor we have to look at with owner surrenders is, if, is there any type of aggression? Because in our model that we have right now, we do not have the resources, either time, caring capacity, or safety to handle dogs that have significant aggression issues, whether that be resource guarding, aggression towards children, aggression towards other companion animals, or just aggression in general. And we cannot safely manage that. And that doesn't just go into consideration for our owner surrenders. It goes into consideration for shelters as well. Um, we, we have to look at all of the behavior notes. And that is something that I do very extensively. I read them actually two or three times on separate occasions before I agree to put a tag and pull a dog from a shelter because I have to look at, okay, it says that their head is low and they're growling when you approach them in the kennel but that they walk well on a leash and they're very res responsive outside. So that to me says that we are fearful in a kennel, but is that because of the environment we're in or is it because of the dog? And I have to take a lot of that into consideration because you are likely going to spend time in a kennel while you're here with us. And if you are cage aggressive or kennel aggressive, I can't safely manage that for both you and me. And that is something that we don't only decide before tacking a dog, but we also decide as we're picking up a dog. And a lot of times that is me um, going to go pick up a dog, especially whenever we're looking at South Texas or something that's more of a transport. Whenever we meet the dog initially, we have to look at every single behavior that is being presented to us at that time and make sure that they're the best candidate for our rescue and that we actually do have the resources to be able to pull them. The behavioral notes from shelters can sometimes be a little bit skewed, can sometimes be that they were just more anxious at the time. So we, whenever I pull a dog or whenever I go pick up a dog, 
from a shelter, I like to take the dog out with me into a yard and I like to walk it around on a lead. I like to um, be the one to pull it out of the kennel in the first place because there's nothing scarier than having a stranger come to you and come to your safe place and bring you out of a kennel. But if a dog can maintain their composure during those times and actually be able to function with me and handle my presence there, that's a really good sign for any sort of aggression that may have been presented in the past. So it's not only a decision that we heavily take seriously before we put in our tag, but in every moment and every interaction we have with that dog before it enters our care, we make sure that we are the best environment and that they would be the best fit for our rescue. And I, I want to give a shout out to Harris County Pets and that they work really well with us. They're honestly what I consider our main shelter partner. Um, we've taken more dogs from them than any other shelter, but they, uh, they don't necessarily know us on a personal level like um, Commerce Animal Services does, but they see the work that we do and they do put a lot of trust in us. But the way that they work with us when we're in on their home turf, so to speak, they I actually got the unique perspective of I got to walk through with them. Um, she actually walked us around to every dog that had husky or husky mix in their description to introduce us and to let us, you know, meet everybody so that we could think about, you know, our potential next dog to come in to rescue from them. Cause we were there to pick up a puppy that needed some pretty significant mm -hmm. medical care. And, and I will know one of the most amazing things about, uh, the rescue coordinator is that as we were going to go see each dog, she knew without even having a piece of paper in front of her where each dog was located mm -hmm. and their information. And this this shelter takes in, I think they have a capacity of around 300 to 400 dogs. And so to know your dogs that well was just astounding. Well, and to put into perspective too, they take in probably, I'm going to throw out a rough estimate for the year, they'll probably end up taking in eight to 12,000 this year depending on how crazy things have gotten um that could be way overestimating honestly i don't know i feel like in june they were at four to six yeah i, I think it's it's not necessarily a conservative estimate but i think it's not far off um and we were sitting with her we were actually meeting a dog named max that we had we said we were going to make some plans to be able to tag him and pull him <coughs> excuse me and we just had to make sure that we had all of the chips and all the ducks in a row and the cards were dealt appropriately before. We're just like, yeah, we'll take him and I don't know where we'll put him. We'll figure it out. Um, but we were actually sitting in with her talking to her and I was like, hey, I wanted to give you an update on some of the dogs we pulled from you and just let you know. Um, and I ran through each of them and I said, you know, Murdoch, who when he was here, he was called Mick. And she goes, oh, yeah, the blind dog. He was like maybe, what, three, four years old and every single dog that I went over with her and I gave her updates on, she knew exactly who we were talking about. And so she really takes her job very seriously. But I had the unique perspective of having that experience with Harris County where she introduced us to dogs and she, there was one that was lunging at the kennel and was, I thought he was probably breaking teeth as we were watching this. And she just crouched down by it and let us see his true behavior 
And, you know, his cage tag had on there um, catch pole only, which keeps the dog at a restricted physical distance from you. And and she's like, I don't know that you guys really have the, the ability to take him. And she's right. She knows that we can't take something quite that capacity. They get to know us pretty well and exactly what we're actually able to handle. And then I, on the flip side, was um, our first interaction with um, the shelter in Garland. And we were tagging a dog. He's They have estimated him at 10 years old. We're going to put him through medical here um, next week to get a more accurate picture of what his needs are. But um, they knew nothing about us on a personal level. But apparently when we were putting in our paperwork, we were told, oh, yeah, we've heard great things about you guys. I'm like... I don't know if it was Harris County and Shelters to Shelters Talk. I don't know if it was their animal control officer that came through that we happen to know from Commerce. But um, word's getting out, and it's it's nice to be able to say, okay, well, I've got the resources to pull this senior dog for you today and make that new shelter contact partner. So while he was a difficult decision of this dog's probably going to be deemed unadoptable due to age and health, and he will probably be our true first hospice case. Um, it was nice to be able to do that for them and to be able to get him out and give him a more comfortable space to be while we figure all this out for him. And definitely, whenever you're considering senior dogs and shelters, it is it is really a good feeling to be able to step in and be able to give that dog a home to be able to live out the rest of his time rather than living that in a shelter, which is just an infinitely better environment for them. Yeah, you don't want any dog staying in a shelter for extended periods of time, but I think that um, least of all, I want senior dogs in there for an extended period of time. They, they've already been through their lives, and they deserve so much more than kennel space and constant barking for you know 24 hours a day where they're just not used to something like that puppies adjust so well young adult dogs can adjust fairly well a lot of them don't adjust and that's why they end up in rescue care but you know they have so much higher chances to get out of there with an adopter than our seniors that we see so that's they have a special place in my heart they they fall under uh the broken things and misfit toys that i like to collect in my life (laughs) So whenever we're talking, we've used this word a number of times now, is resources. Whenever we're talking about resources, this can be everything from caring capacity to actual space to kennel space to money. And money is something that is so hard to come by to work for and to be able to have as a nonprofit as we are fully funded by donations now we are also a business and as a business we have costs of doing business um such as getting more kennels getting um dog food of all things we've run through so much dog food and it's about a 40 what is it a 47 pound bag yeah, we week. run we run forty seven pounds every week. Yeah, and and that's just for the dogs in our like our our direct care. That's not including our personal pets. That is just strictly rescue dogs in our care. That does not include dogs in foster care, where they have their own bag of food that we send them or send them with, and they go through that over time. This is every week we are cracking open a forty seven pound bag here because we're feeding so many. 
Yep, and that's actually even just adult food, not mm-hmm. even counting puppy food either. Um, but we also buy vaccines. We have medical costs for each dog. Now, a lot of times whenever we're looking at these costs and looking at the cost of bringing a dog in, we suddenly have a very difficult decision to make because we need to decide between do we put money into these material resources or do we put money into a dog? Yeah, and that can be really difficult because we look at, okay, we are going to need to buy food in the next, you know, three, four weeks, and that's going to be X amount of dollars for an order. Um, We have these dogs needing XYZ for medical care. Like, we actually have... Um, a little over a thousand dollars that was set aside as a reserve for two dogs that need to undergo heartworm treatment. Well, they still have daily costs that is a financial need for the rescue of they need food, they need water, they need power and electricity in order to clean their kennels and their bowls and keep them in a clean living environment. So there's a lot more that goes into we've got to weigh our personal costs as well of, you know, we pay our utilities for our house, which we have rescue dogs literally living in every room in the house because we have two of the rescue dogs that live in our personal pack right now because they were not doing well or they've just been here for so long um, that they needed time out. And we have to weigh that in. And while we may have in the bank, we've it's like, oh, we have enough money to pull that dog and either do that amputation surgery or you know we can afford to do heartworm treatment on another dog right now those sorts of things it's we also have to take into consideration what if one of our dogs has an emergency Mm -hmm. which we've had a number of times where we've had dogs either end up in the er which would be um lenny's case well lenny and maya and maya um very different reasons. Lenny actually had been neutered that day. I picked him up at five o'clock. I got him home around six, six thirty because it was quite a drive. Um, I let him rest in his kennel and I gave him a small, small snack. He was not feeling it, which is not uncommon for dogs after they've had anesthetics. Uh, and then I went to let them out to go potty before we were going to bed. It was about 1030 at night. He'd only been home for all maximum of four hours had his cone on the whole time, was in his kennel, not super active, because we have active camera feeds on our dogs at all times. There is not a single one of our dogs that is not monitored 24 hours a day that if we have to pull camera feed and look back at what happened, we can't do that. And so I knew he was not active. I knew he was not getting to his incision, and he actually had um, a pretty significant hemorrhage of either a ligature came undone or something had happened and I had to pack him up and I was driving towards Dallas while Stephen was calling emergency room saying, Hey, who can see us? Um, and it was, it was a moment of, Oh my God, the rescue does not have the money for this. And this was fairly early on in our rescue. Mm -hmm. And at that time we did not have as large of a donor base. We didn't have as many built up resources And this visit actually ended up being something that we maxed out what we could pull from the rescue. Then we maxed out one of our credit cards. We maxed out another one Mm -hmm. um, just to make this happen. And this was a case in which we had to decide which one, what is more worth it or what quality of life 
does Lenny have moving forward from this compared to what quality of life uh, compared to euthanasia? And that was a very difficult decision. And especially whenever you're considering the monetary resources of emergency surgery could cost this much. Well, I could save five or six dogs for that much. And that's always a decision that we have to make whenever we're encountering these emergencies. And, you know, I was the one that was sitting on the ER floor with him. He's bleeding all over me. And I'm sitting there going, oh, my God, I'm going to have to lose a dog because of a neuter. Of all freaking things. Are you kidding me? And thank God our friend Casey <laughs> was there with me that night. Because I was, I was like, keeping myself mostly composed. But on the inside, I was, like, freaking out and sobbing. Um, and she sat with me until, like, I think three or four o'clock in the morning. Easily. She was there for a long time with me. Um, and she, she was like, you know what? We're going to post these pictures and we're going to fundraise for you. She's like, we'll get this covered. No problem. She's like, you, we can do this. She's like, but he's going to make it. We're going to be fine. I was like, Oh my God, I can't even think about this right now. Um, but you know, we quality of life post-surgery was a tough recovery he was in his cone for another month that incision really was difficult to heal um what we actually wound up having to do was actually um what's called a scrotal ablation where we took off the whole scrotum found the bleeder uh put it back together i had the very unique um experience of getting to run lenny's anesthesia in the er because they were a little bit short-handed and i obviously have the skills and they let me stand there and watch the whole time no problem and so I got to be with Lenny every step of the way. And ultimately, I think that we made absolutely the right choice. Oh, yeah. He has a wonderful home now, and he is just such an amazing dog. Um, so, yeah, he he was one instance in which he had a massive quality of life to look forward to if we were able to save him from this. And it's... Decisions like those that we have to make each day, even when considering what money we spend on enrichment items, vaccines, heartworm treatment, etc., is every dollar of that can be used to save another life. But every dollar of that is also needed to maintain the lives that we have saved. And so that's a consideration that a lot of people don't think about with rescue is that yes, we may have gotten a $300 donation, we may have gotten a $250 adoption fee. Well, that $250 is about our food cost for a month, if that. And, and it also is about what we spend on wellness care to bring a new dog into rescue that's gonna need all of their vaccines, their spay or neuter, all of their deworming, all of their um, like their heartworm tests and their flea and tick preventative and their heartworm preventative for the time we expect them to be in foster care or in rescue care. And so we try to set it up that if we have a dog go out, it sponsors a dog to come in. That does not mean that this is a constant revolving door. We recently had a very good influx of adoptions, but we haven't been able to bring in that equal number of dogs because we have a couple of pretty significant medical cases right now. Mm -hmm. And it's it's a balance that we try to continuously keep because we need to make sure that we are saving as many lives as we can. But at the same time, we need to make sure that the dogs that we have pulled are getting the most responsible decisions made for their care. They're able to actually have the enrichment they need. They're able to get the medical care that they need. They're 
Um, they're able to have power and water, um, very simple things. So it's, it's just a very difficult series of decisions, essentially, every day that we have to make to make this happen. It's a triage system. Eventually, I would love to be able to get tagged in that dog that's been hit by a car that's at a shelter that has a 24-hour timeline to have a live outcome versus um, compassionate, humane euthanasia. And I would love to be able to tag that dog and say, I'll meet you at the ER with the dog. But right now, we're just not there. And there's such a massive number of dogs needing to come into rescue care right now that I have to weigh that option of, does one dog get to live? and 16 die or do i take three of the 16 Mm -hmm. because that's where what we have space for and eventually i'd really love to be able to say you know what we've got the money i've got the kennel at home i'll i'll see you there but right now we're just not there but eventually and with everyone's support we definitely will be getting there one day so whenever you mention a triage system, that is something, this is a very sensitive topic. So I will give a disclaimer to everyone who is listening. Euthanasia is something that we're going to be discussing. And if that is a topic that is sensitive to you or you are particularly struggle with, um, you're more than welcome to skip this last 10 minutes. But whenever we're making decisions in a rescue and whenever we're talking about lives the other side of it always has to be considered and whenever you're bringing these dogs in and they are severe medical cases behavioral cases etc sometimes some of them don't always make it yeah uh and i have the I have the unique perspective of knowing how to read medical records and how to look at videos and things like that and say, okay, this is most likely what's going on under no circumstances am I a DVM that has done an exam on that animal with appropriate diagnostics. But I have a pretty good general idea of looking at something and go, oh, a pneumothorax with a fractured pelvis and contusions in the mouth. Well, that's dog was most likely hit by a car which means that it could have another week to two weeks in ICU if this goes really south really fast or it could be that that dog spontaneously arrests overnight even with emergent care and so one of the cases that we had that I said you know what we've got to do something we have to try even if it means that all we do is let this little guy go compassionately his name was Coda we were contacted by a a citizen that said, hey, I had this dog that was dumped on my property, but he can't really walk. And he sent us some videos. I was like, oh God, that's either neuro or a a hit by car. So it was, I was looking at, all right, either we've got severe damage that maybe surgery can correct and maybe it can't, or we could have some kind of neurologic disease going on, which... If it's neurologic disease, I definitely can't fix that. Um, It progressed to us picking this little guy up, and we stopped for gas, and I got into the back of our car, and I was checking his reflexes and his um, superficial versus deep pain, and I was just like, if he doesn't have any deep pain and he doesn't have any superficial, I 
told Stephen, I was like, we're going straight to the ER and we're going to euthanize because there's no coming back from that. Well, he did have some reflexes, but over the next 24 to 48 hours, I think we picked him up on a Friday. Yeah. And we took him in on a Monday or Tuesday, but I, uh, I gave him a bath because he was covered in fleas. It was so bad that water looked like I had bathed this dog in blood because when you get flea dirt off of them, it turns this thick red color. Um, but he could not stand. He could not walk. And trying to pick him up with a sling caused so much pain. He was screaming and flipping in circles because it hurt so bad. So I would pick him up and carry him outside. He would lay down and he would urinate on the grass out there without standing. And I was like, I really don't know. I'm getting a bad feeling about this. This doesn't feel good. We took him into our veterinarian and they did x-rays um, and found that he likely had spinal trauma. It was either a severe disc was pushing on his spine or he could have had a small spinal fracture. It was very difficult to tell because he was in so much pain they couldn't get ideal images. But um, we had our emergency board meeting on the phone and we talked about, you know, we were offered to try strict cage rest and meds to decompress that spine and to see but we knew going into it we did not have the funds for something like an MRI and spinal surgery which can cause cost up to $25,000 and that's not really something that I'm going to triage rescue funds into um but more what was more important was CODA didn't have the quality of life that we needed in order to even consider going down that route of try meds and try further imaging and see what happens. He had been like that. He had been down in the hind end for over a week and he was getting worse, not better. And that to me said that this was going to be unreversible because I have worked with cases like this in ICU and it is not fun for anybody involved, the caregivers, the animal, none of it. And so ultimately we did make the very, very difficult decision to let him go. And we did euthanize him that day. And that was, that was a rough day. Um, and on more, on a different note, there are always decisions to be made when it comes down to behavior too. And this is a very controversial topic. Mm-hmm. and something that a lot of people have extremely strong feelings on. But there are some times whenever behavior becomes significantly dangerous. And one of those instances that we came across, his name was Captain, and he was a pull from Harris County Pets. Captain started out, you know, Stephen was able to get him out of the kennel. He interacted with him outside. He got him loaded up into the car, no problem. And then as Captain settled into our environment in our home, it became very apparent that he had some very deep underlying behavioral issues. And we don't know what his past necessarily was. He was surrendered as an owner surrender to Harris County for showing um, some inappropriate, aggressive-type behaviors to the, the surrenderer's nieces. Um, we don't know exactly what that entailed. That's not information that we are necessarily given. It just says 
um, the reason for this surrender, and they do give us very mild uh, versions of this full story. But uh, he had actually been pulled by another rescue and then brought back a few hours later, and they said that this dog's too aggressive to handle, and we are not doing this. And Stephen just didn't see that when he picked him up, and that's why we proceeded with um, taking him under our care. And and sometimes in the different environments, dogs can present a little bit differently. In this case, he was workable as long as I had him out of his kennel space and I was working with him out in a field. He seemed to be all right and there was no visible aggression, but that very quickly changed. Very quickly changed once he got here. He... Um... We could not approach him in his kennel. We would have to very quickly unlatch the kennel door and let him out and then leash him once he was... We had him isolated in our bathroom to give him more privacy um, and not put him in our general space where he would have a roommate or two. Um, And we would have to leash him and leash walk him outside to then let him out to explore and uh, at first, you know, he, he knew Stephen from getting out of the shelter and he was aware of who he was and he was comfortable with him. And it very quickly turned to um, aggressive dominance where he would actually clutch Stephen with his front feet and climb up in his face and stare him down and growl at his face. And this dog was a good like 75, 80 pounds. Um, and he we tried everything and we'll probably do a a full segment on his whole story just start to finish of exactly what resources we put into him but ultimately it was decided that he was not a dog that was going to overcome the traumas of his past and that he would not be safe to release into society and despite trying to find sanctuary for him it got to a point where he was just too dangerous to even have in our own home Well, and that point was a very scary encounter with him um, shortly after his neuter that we got him into the bathroom and it was Janelle who brought him into the bathroom and we put on his cone and immediately he flipped and he got whale-eyed. He started lunging at her, snapping at her. She had to throw a kennel in front of the shower door so that way it would block him off from her and she started screaming for help. And I ran in there, I threw a slip lead over his head while he was snapping at me and biting at me and was able to work him into his kennel um, very, very, very carefully um, and get it closed. But from then on, he never let us interact with him again. And that was one of the big turning points whenever we had to make that decision as regards to safety for him. Yeah, and it was very much a safety for him situation because I was willing to give him more time even after that interaction. And ultimately, if he had had to go into a bite quarantine or if he had, you know, there was a couple close calls where maybe he could have killed another animal, um, he would have been deemed a dangerous dog by the county or the city and that wouldn't have been very unpleasant last couple of weeks for him to be in a true bite quarantine and then euthanized by the city and that's just not the end that we wanted for him if it did have to be that way and 
So we, we chose to take control of that situation ourselves and to give him the, the honor and the dignity that he deserved. We know that we're ending this on a sad and serious note, but we appreciate everybody for listening to our conversation today. And if you'd like to check us out, please visit our website at www.redstonehuskyrescue.org. Thank you very much.